as part of our uh, as part of our psalm series that we're currently in. We'll be in Psalm three today. The psalms teach us how to feel, think, act, and speak in line with God's heart. There are several ways in which the psalms condition our hearts after God's. They condition them through thanksgiving, through confession, through lament and reverence, through a delight in, dis- in instruction, and through praise. Today we'll be looking at Psalm 3, which conditions our heart to lament rightly and to lament well. But what is lament? Not like grumbling or complaining about the stress of our week or the inconveniences of our lives. Lament is much deeper. Lament is grieving the brokenness in this world. It's characterized by crying out to God, asking God for help, and responding in trust and praise. I'll repeat that again. Lament is grieving the brokenness in this world. It's saying that we recognize that our situation is not the enemy, but it's what the enemy does with that situation, what untruths he speaks to our very uh, souls and our lives, our identity. That's where our lament should, should, uh, should be focused. Now today we're going to be turning to uh, 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 a lament of David. But to illustrate maybe some of what lament is and that, that God's eye view perspective of our situation in the midst of lament, I want to bring up uh, a couple here, uh, Horatio and Anna Spafford. Um, this is a story of this couple, a couple who lived in the, uh, in the late 1800s, who uh, underwent uh, incredible suffering, yet were able to, to praise God in the midst of it. We're able to cry out to God and trust in Him. In 1871, Horatio and Anna Spafford uh, lived in uh, Chicago. Horatio was a prosperous lawyer, a devout Christian, and they lived in Lakeview, Chicago. In that year, the Great Fire broke out, which devastated the entire city. For the next two years, Horatio and Anna devoted their time to welfare work amongst the refugees of the fire. By November 1873, the Spaffords needed some respite and decided to join friends in Europe. But just before their departure, Horatio was detained on business. Anna and their four daughters were persuaded to set off without him, but en route, tragedy struck. The steamship they were traveling on sank after colliding with another ship in mid-ocean. Of the hundreds on board, Anna was, only, uh, was one of only 27 who were rescued, having been kept afloat by a piece of debris. All four of their young daughters did not survive. Overcome with despair, at the loss of her children. Anna felt strongly that she had been saved for a purpose. Um, Anna's quoted as having said, God gave me four daughters. Now they have been taken from me. And someday I will understand why. In the midst of, of deep suffering, in the midst of a long, dark night, Anna somehow is able to, to, to say, God has given, God has taken. Someday, he will, he, he will give me the insight to his purposes. See, how could she lament in this, in this devastating loss, yet still have hope in God's good plan? 
I believe it's because she, like David, had what I would call a holy perspective. Or maybe uh, easier to remember, a, a God's eye view of her life. So uh, among many things that we'll hear in Psalm 3 today, I want us to walk away remembering this. That we are to remember a God's eye view of our situation. To find that holy perspective. Now we can have that holy perspective because, because David will, will give us uh, three ways, uh, three reminders of reasons why we can have that holy perspective, that God's eye view of our situation. It says it's because the Lord alone shields you, because the Lord alone sustains you, and because the Lord alone saves you. Now, out of reverence for God's word, I'd love that we could stand as I read our text for us today. Psalm 3, a psalm of David when he fled from Absalom his son. O Lord, how many are my foes. Many are rising against me. Many are saying of my soul, there is no salvation for him in God. But you, O Lord, are a shield about me, my glory and the lifter of my head. I cried aloud to the Lord, and he answered me from his holy hill. I lay down and slept. I woke again, for the Lord sustained me. I will not be afraid of many thousands of people who have set themselves against me all around. Arise, O Lord, save me, O my God, for you strike my enemies on the cheek. You break the teeth of the wicked. Salvation belongs to the Lord. Your blessing be on your people. And because we are so thankful for the way that the Lord has revealed himself to us, we, th- we say thanks be to God. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. Remember a God's eye view of your situation. We'll see this in three ways. The Lord sh- alone shields us. The Lord alone sustains us. And the Lord alone saves us. Now, verses 1 through 3 here. We see that David's situation is real. But his situation is not the enemy. That's the key here. David's situation is real, but his situation is not the enemy. You see, David rightly knows and and helps us to understand that the enemy is actually death and the deceiver. The enemy's attacks are not the inconveniences of the day or the situation itself, but the counter-gospels that are spoken, the untruths that, 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 that are said of David's heart. See, let's consider David's situation here. The prologue tells us that he's fleeing from his son, Absalom. I see these words right up here. There's verse 1, but right above that, many times a psalm will give you a little uh, insight as to kind of the author of it or, uh, or a situation surrounding it. We get one here with that. So what's all in there? Um, Absalom is uh, the, son of, uh, the son of David. Uh, he, was, he killed his brother, uh, Amnon, uh, and wasn't punished for this. So now he's you know, claiming the throne. Uh, Amnon, however, had done some pretty horrible things as well. He had raped his sister, and David had not uh, punished him or, or, or discussed this uh, matter here. And over uh, somewhat of like uh, seven to ten years here, this, this, this 
way of living and an unpunishment and poor fathering and discipline has happened. And now we're at a point where Absalom is saying, I'm going to take the throne. Now, this was already told to David that his family would fall apart uh, because of his sin with Bathsheba. Uh, and so he, he does understand a bit of this, that he is uh, just uh, uh, receiving his uh, due punishment that he's been told uh, for this. So there's some of that, but let's consider the whole situation here. That's kind of what's happening here. David has run away and is now hiding for his life. The prologue tells us that he's fleeing from his son, Absalom. You see now, now internally, there may be guilt at fathering poorly, which is somewhat true. There's, there may be shame for doing a poor job as king which is somewhat true. Their fear for his life, which is somewhat true. There's probably some PTSD from the last time he was running around in caves uh, trying to save his life when Saul was after him. So he's been doing this and he's back at it and it's all coming back right now. So I'm sure he's just an emotional wreck at this point. Now you might, have rec- uh, you might not have recently abdicated your throne, but I'm sure you have situations speaking Guilt, shame, or fear into your thoughts. And maybe there's surface level things like uh, a debt that you can't pay off. Uh, maybe an argument uh, that you just can't seem to get out of. Uh, maybe a relationship that's gone awry. Maybe it's no relationship and, and, and you're trying to figure out how to solve this problem of loneliness. Maybe you're frustrated or, or, or at your wit's end or beyond your capacity uh, in, in parenting in marriage, in your career, something like that. Those are, those are situations that, that come up. Now, those aren't the enemy. Those situations aren't the enemy. But those situations often, when we reflect on them, for even a moment, have an ability to, to drive us to guilt or shame or fear. You see, David doesn't write about the situation so much here. He understands that they're passing events. See, this is the wisdom in this psalm here. What he does talk about is how the deceiver takes those situation and attacks our soul. He attacks our identity. He attacks uh, a true right understanding of God's view of us. And he does it from all sides. Let's read this again. Verses one and two. Lord, how many are my foes? How many are the foes? How many are rising against me? How many are saying of my soul, are saying of my person, are saying of my identity? There is no salvation for him in God. We understand that there's salvation. We believe that God is a God who saves, but this salvation is not for him. See, the deceiver takes these situations and attacks us from all around. And he says things like, you are unlovable. You are unforgivable. Your sin is so gross. Your sin is so ridiculous. Your sin is so easy to get over that we have no idea why you don't get over it. Your sin is so great and deplorable. You can't be forgiven. These are trajectories that we go when we let the deceiver take us there. These are the attacks that he says of our soul. There is a God 
But there's no way He's going to save you. There's no way that you are worthy of any kind of relationship. And because that's so great, you are going to be unforgettable. You are unlovable, unforgivable, and unforgettable. It is a horrible event, and everyone will remember that you were the worst of sinners. But in verse 3, David remembers something. He reminds himself that no matter how many, how numerous, how great the thousands of multitude are the foes and enemies who are speaking unworthiness against his soul, he remembers that no matter how many, there is one Lord who serves as one shield protecting their deceptive accusations. There is a God who makes all of the devil's untruths spoken to our soul. He makes them not affect us. You're unworthy. That's not true. You're unlovable. That's not true. You're unforgivable. That's not true. Where's the noise of your enemy? Your situation's happening. But how is the deceiver using that to speak to who you are and how you understand yourself as a person, in relationship with others, and most importantly, in relationship with God? You see, God sees you as lovable. God sees you as worthy. Are you a father that's struggling to father well? Are you a husband that's too busy, too distant, too clumsy to love well? Is your parenting continually reminding you of your vindictiveness, of your impatience, of all the ways in which you don't display Christ to your kids? Those may be real things. But the truth is, those are not what define you in the sight of God. We're all trying to figure it out, but what defines us is that God loves us. In verse 3, David remembers this. You, O Lord, are a shield about me, my glory and the lifter of my head. The deceiver will beat me down, but you are the glory and the lifter of my head. You see, the Lord alone is our shield. No entertainment, no group of friends, no successes at work will shield us from the devil's attacks. They may make our reputation seem nice on the outside, but they'll never shield us. From, they'll never shield our soul, our identity, from the devil's attacks. They'll just patch it and cover it for a while. That true shield is God. That true shield is Christ. You see, we can take in deep seasons of lament. In the darkest hour, we can cry out to God confidently to save us because we know that the Lord alone is our shield. 
But also David reminds us that the Lord alone sustains us through the darkest hour. See, I want to I want to step out here uh, of the of the plot that's going on, of the di- dialogue that's taking place. I want to kind of give a, a little bit of a, a literary approach to this and, and just look at this. Now, if you have a, a, a digital Bible, if you have it on your phone or an iPad or whatever, and you're following along there, great, fine, wonderful. I will promote that. It's not a bad thing, but uh, I, I will just do a plug for a paper Bible. Uh, paper Bibles are so fantastic because they give you that spatial ordering of things. You can actually see, like I'm looking at the whole psalm right now, and you can see it flow. Uh, I don't have to scroll a whole bunch to get to here and there. You can see it kind of as it's composed, and you can kind of separate its length and this and that. So I mean, that's just a plug there. If you have a paper Bible, great. This will be a little bit easier for you. If not, get your fingers ready. Um, okay, so verses 1 through 3. David is speaking to someone. Who is he speaking to? He's speaking to the Lord. O Lord, starts verse 1. O Lord, how many of my foes? And then he goes down to say, uh, but you, O Lord, are a shield about me. He's crying out to God. He's crying out to God. And now he's going to resume that crying out to God, speaking directly to God in verse, uh, verses 7 uh, and 8. Arise, O Lord, save me, O my God. But right here in verses 4, 5, and 6, he does what in, in, theater, uh, in theater you would call an aside. He steps aside from this action uh, to, to speak to the audience, to speak to the reader, to speak to the congregation. So I was, uh, I, I was in theater when I was growing up, and, uh, and I had a couple parts that had asides in them. And so what would happen here is this action is playing out, uh, in the in the theater, uh, you know, in, on the on the stage, uh, no matter what you know what the genre is, it usually happens in you know comedy uh, a lot in uh, in um, maybe suspense or horror. So you know a little bit of what's going on. The idea is that the um, is that the characters aren't totally clued into all of the dynamics of their situation. So what's happening on stage? Not everyone is aware of that. So then, just as I'm going to do now, you know, you would step aside. Uh, from the action there, and, and you would kind of break that wall, and you come into the audience, and you say, okay, let me give you, and then whatever I would say would be the interpretive key to what's about to happen or what is happening here. So now you have more insight than the characters do in the plot on the stage, and now you can understand more wisely what's happening here. Now, that may help you understand more of the mystery. It may help you understand more of the tension or the agony of why they aren't getting all the clues that are there. Well, you have the key, so you know. Or it may uh, give you a lot of insight to the comedy that's happening here. Uh, Shakespeare does this a lot. Um, uh, Have you ever watched the show The Office? Uh, They're phenomenal. They're masters of the aside. Uh, So there's this comedy happening in the workplace, but then they take people in and do these interviews and they give you insights. Like you're getting to know the characters at a deeper level. You're getting to know their motives and their understandings of the situation individually. Now, they aren't having those conversations with each other. They don't have that knowledge. You do. The audience does. And so now when you go and watch the events play out, you see much more dynamics at play than, uh, than you did before. So that's kind of what this aside does. This is what David is doing for us here in verses 4, 5, and 6. He's, give, he's stepping aside and he's saying, here is why I can have a God's eye view of my situation. 
here is some insight as to why I'm actually crying out to God when he is punishing me for my sin. There's something else that happens here, though. As he steps away from the dialogue, he's also stepping away from the noise of the situation. So if we're thinking about this kind of in movie terms or theater terms, uh, there's a lot of noise growing here. How many are my foes? Many are rising. And they're all saying from all around, there is no salvation for him and God. They're all screaming these accusations at me from all sides. And so it's almost as though, you know, they're surrounding him, uh, beating him down and screaming these things. And then he says uh, in verse four, and I cried aloud to the Lord. And so now David's screaming up to him. But then something happens in these verses. He says, I cried out to the Lord and he answered me from his holy hill. And then it goes quiet. The noise goes away. He steps aside. He slows down and he takes a moment of quiet. I lay down and slept. I woke again. For the Lord sustained me. I will not be afraid of many thousands of people who have set themselves against me all around. Hey, we're not good at turning down the noise and hearing God when he answers us from on high. So we return to this question of lament. See, oftentimes when simple things that don't take me to London, they're not big situations. When those happen in my life, I try to power through it. I try to manage my schedule. I try to manage my meetings. I try to, I try to uh, uh, send a whole bunch more emails. I try to take care of things. What I'm doing is I'm amping up the noise because I'm trying to sustain myself through this. Coffee intake goes up, sleep goes down. That's what we do in America when we want to sustain ourselves. We need to learn to identify the, 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 the counter gospels, the untruths that the devil speaks from our situation. That's not the enemy. What the devil does with that and speaks to us. We need to identify that that's the enemy. That will change the way we interact with our situations if we understand who the real enemy is. But then here, if the Lord is our sustainer, we need to understand that we can quiet and slow and reflect on these things. We can put our trust in God. The question of lament. How can the Spaffords, how can David sleep when there is so much bad going on around him? What kind of perspective does it take to lay down in the midst of an attack? It takes a God's eye perspective, a God's eye view of your situation. It means that you trust in God to sustain. It means that you find peace in God alone, that your peace comes from Christ. See, this rhythm of slowing down and quieting and remembering God and his work, it conditions our heart to a holy perspective. Nothing can sustain you except God. Now, the Parkview staff were reading 
a book by C.J. Mahaney. It's on humility. Uh, at one point in this, uh, he talks about uh, this idea of, of going to bed and what it does to our humility, how it actually can help us cultivate our humility rather than just crash out on the bed at the end of the night and say, I'm so exhausted. I've been sustaining myself all day and now I'm going to crash out. We actually thank God for sustaining us through the day and we really uh, we reflect and we pray and we ask him to sustain us through the night. Now, you can, you're, you're going to bed and you're rising up. It can be a very redemptive practice for you this week. This is what C.J. Mahaney says about sleeping. He says, sleep is a picture of a parable and a parable of what it means to be a Christian. Your sleep tonight will be a small but real act of faith. You'll lay your full weight on the bed, trusting this structure to support you. You can fully relax because no effort at supporting yourself is required. Something else is holding you up. And in the same way, I'd add in a more significant way, throughout the night as you sleep, someone else is sustaining you. This is a picture of what it's like to belong to Christ. So I'd encourage you as we practice, as we go to sleep, which we will, to use that for redemptive ends. To begin every morning thanking God for his blessings, for his sustaining hand. To every evening, thank God for his work throughout the day, for his salvation. And to pray for another night of sustaining. We can have a God's eye perspective of our situation because we know that the Lord alone shields us, that the Lord alone sustains us. But verses 7 and 8 now will remind us that the Lord alone saves us. Now equipped with this holy perspective, this God's eye view of the, of the momentary situation, David can rise and shout rightly for God's salvation. He returns from the quietness to say, Arise, O Lord, save me, O my God. He does it not out of a plea of despair, but out of confident expectation. You are a God who does this. You shield, you sustain, you save. Now do it. He does this out of a lament for the broken world. He wants the brokenness to end. Not that he wants his enemies punished, but that he wants evil to be taken care of. We do well to cry out for God's saving work now. Now here's uh, maybe one last insight to the psalm. Is that there's something fascinating about how the psalms work. Is that, that the fascinating thing is that the psalms all point to Christ. Uh, there's, uh, there's an author, Tim Keller. He writes a, a devotional book. It's a phenomenal devotional book. And he names it. He goes through all the psalms. He names this book the Songs of Jesus. Because he understands also that that the Psalms all point to Jesus. There are two ways that they do this. See, the Psalms point to Jesus in, in one of two ways. They describe his situation. I think a couple weeks ago, uh, Pastor Doug uh, preached on Psalm 34. In Psalm 34, it speaks of the righteous, plural, as, as the people of God, the righteous ones uh, that are doing the right things. Uh, but then it also speaks of the righteous one, the one person. That's Jesus. It says, and of this righteous one, not a bone will be broken. 
Now, this is a foreshadowing of events of Christ. It's pointing us to Christ when the centurion comes up and he says, you know, and he, and he looks at Jesus is already dead on the cross. He doesn't break his bones. So that scripture may be fulfilled. The Psalms have already foretold us what will happen with Jesus. But there's something else that happens. There's another way that the Psalms uh, function is that they, they are the, they preempt the very words of Jesus Christ. Hanging on the cross, Jesus says, Psalm 22, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Now, this Psalm, Psalm 3, is fascinating because it does have some of the words, some of the language, some of the expression of Jesus, but it recounts, the whole thing recounts his life, his death, his resurrection, so that he can be the one who saves. God save me that I might save the world. Now, I'm going to make this connection. I've rewritten this a little bit. You could follow along verses 1 through, uh, through 8. And I'm going to, re- I'm going to read here uh, maybe a rewriting to help make this connection between how Christ is actually the one who's at the foundational level of this psalm. So Jesus says, much like David... Many are my foes, many are rising against me, saying, crucify him. How can he save us if he can't even save himself? There is no salvation for him in God. Cursed is a man who hangs from a tree. And Jesus, naked, beaten, scorned by all, Jesus, the king of the Jews, cried aloud to the Lord, and he answered. And as Jesus laid, slept, and woke Again, the Lord sustained him. See, uh, 1 Corinthians fifteen twenty says, But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the firstfruits of those who have fallen asleep. You see, Jesus is the answer of this. Arise, save me. And God does this. Strike your enemy on the cheek. Break the teeth of the wicked. Some uh, uh, first Corinthians tells us of how Christ does this. As we read on to first Corinthians 15, for as uh, as by man came death, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. But each in his own order, Christ, the first fruits, then at his coming, those who belong to Christ, then comes the end. When he delivers the kingdom of God, the father Uh, to God the Father after destroying every rule, every authority and power. For he must reign and bring back, uh, and bringing back the language of Psalm 3, verse 4, he must reign as the anointed king from Zion, his holy hill, until he has put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. See, brothers and sisters, Christ is the point of this. Christ makes shielding, sustaining, and saving possible. If the Lord is able and willing to save you from death itself, the last enemy destroyed is death. How, how small must be the inconvenience of our day and how silly of us not to take it all to him in prayer. This perspective ought to change our daily thoughts. The Lord is not promising us easy days. See, I, the, the, the great thing here is that in Psalm 3, we don't get resolve. We can go back to Second Samuel and find out what happens, and I'd encourage you to do that. But here we don't have that resolve because we don't always get that resolve in our lives. We don't always get a nice ending to our marriage counseling. We don't always get a nice ending to our, teen, uh, our parenting of teens. We don't always get 
a nice ending to many seasons of life because we live in a broken world, because we are receiving some of the effects of our sin and the sins of those before us. But those situations don't define us. Because we can have faith in Christ, Christ is the one who can truly shield us. You are unlovable, and because of Christ's death on the cross, Jesus and God say, come to me, you are my beloved children. When Satan says that you can do it on your own, or you have no power to do anything, and God especially doesn't, Christ on the cross puts to death, death. He puts to shame his foes. He strikes them on the cheek. He breaks their teeth. He does it definitively, victoriously, so that we may know that death is done and that is not on us. And Christ can save us from every foe, can save us from every accusation. Not that we won't hear it, not that we won't think it, but he saves it from being real of our souls and being real of our destiny. And what great hope is that in times of darkness? So how do we get this God's eye perspective? Well, there must be preparing for it. We need to have a preparedness for this perspective. And how do you train for anything? How do you get anything? It takes time and effort. Be in the law of the Lord and meditate on it to the point of delighting in it. You never know. When those songs of God, when those verses, when those phrases, when those things you need to know will come up. But they won't come up unless you're cultivating that knowledge of it. Be in it. Drink it in deeply and often. Talk about it with others. In our situations, now equipped with the word of God that we're going to each day. We need to have an individual awareness about it. Ephesians 6 speaks of spiritual warfare. It says, be on guard for the devil's attacks, for the arrows of the accuser. So be on guard of that. It shows up a lot of times in tension and conflict and stress. And see, and we can quickly move along and say, that's the enemy. We need to get rid of it. This person is stressful, but really what's happening is the devil is using that situation, that argument, that conversation, that, that whatever it would be to speak untruths to you. So in those moments, we need to see our tension and our conflict as opportunities to see off-centered gospels. Maybe I'm trying to be the shield. Maybe I'm trying to make you the enemy and not the untruths that's speaking of me. Maybe I'm trying to be the sustainer in this. Maybe I'm trying to be your savior and to teach you the right way. We need to see and step back in those moments to see all of our tensions as opportunities to rightly diagnose off-centered gospels. And then we can move into that with a corporate awareness. So the individual awareness happens so that we have a corporate awareness. David models this. He says, salvation belongs to the Lord. We all agree this salvation belongs to the Lord. And while the many were saying it's not for me, I'm saying it is for me. 
But also he says, salvation belongs to the Lord. Your blessing be on your people. Not only is salvation for me, but it's also for you. Salvation is for your people. We bring that truth. We bring that gospel into each other's lives. We speak truth into one another. Uh, The Apostle Paul in Ephesians calls this edifying. We build each other up with words of truth and love, reminding each other of our identity in Christ, not our identity in our situation. I want to go back to the situation with Horatio Spafford. We've heard what Anna did. We've heard what David did in times of darkness. Now I want to hear what Horatio did in times of darkness. While Anna was grieving in Europe, in Chicago, Horatio received a tragic telegram from his wife, saved alone. He later heard of more of the events, and now setting off to bring Anna home, he crossed the Atlantic and the watery grave of his four daughters, moved by the experience, the darkness of his hour, and the hope that he had In God, he wrote the hymn, It is well with my soul, which expressed his faith. Though many were speaking against his soul that this is your fault, this is your punishment, he knew that in Christ his soul was well. Now, I'm going to read uh, the first first chorus of this, or, or the first verse of this hymn. And I want us to reflect, begin reflecting. We'll pray about this right after the sermon. Where is the devil speaking unworthiness to you? Where is the devil trying to rip you from the power and love of God? What is that situation? What needs to be called out and remedied in that? When peace like a river attendeth my way, when sorrows like sea billows roll, whatever my lot, thou hast taught me to say, it is well It is well with my soul. Our brothers and sisters, I want us to take a moment. Oftentimes we pray for the salvation of others. Today I want to just pray for the salvation of ourselves. That we would understand God as our shield, as our sustainer, as our savior. So let's pray. Lord God, friend of those in need, we lift up the prayers of our heart for those still burdened, those still seeking healing, those in need within the church and the world. God, those people are us. We lift our prayers to you.